Right, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Neil Sharp. I am the uh, Director of Content and Strategy at Edison Group. Uh, for those of you who don't know Edison Group, we are a issuer-sponsored uh, research house covering around 400 companies um, and also have a, an IR business uh, that runs alongside that. Um, the topic uh, which is seemingly very popular is the uh, the opportunities and challenges of uh, becoming a public company. Uh, I've got a great set of panelists here uh, to help navigate people uh, through this, and I wanted to uh, give them the opportunity to start introducing themselves. Uh, if I could start with um, Claire, uh, Claire, would you would you quickly introduce your business and yourself? Thank you, Neil. Morning, um, everybody. So I manage a stockbroking firm in London called Hyperdam, which began life in early 2007. And also separately, I'm deputy chairman and non-exec director of the Quoted Companies Alliance and chair the judging panel of the Small Cap Awards in the city. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Claire. Um, next, if I could get Michael to uh, take a moment just to introduce his firm and himself. Certainly. Uh, thank you, Neil. Um, I'm Michael Corcoran. Um, a partner at Hill Dickinson in the corporate team. I've been working, specialising in capital markets for about 15 years, uh, predominantly with smaller cap companies. Hill Dickinson's an international firm uh, for uh, offices in the UK. Um, I'm based in London. Thank you. Uh, Paul? Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much, Neil. Um, my name's Paul Blythe. I'm head of capital markets here at Crow. Um, Crow is a top 10 accountancy firm in the UK, um, providing reporting accountant services for companies coming to list in London. Uh, we look after 71 listed companies, of which 49 are on AIM. Thank you. Thanks. And last, but certainly not least, Doug. Uh, thank you, Neil. Um, yes, so my name is Doug Armour. I'm a director at Share Registrars, and we are one of the relatively few Crestonable Share Registrars uh, for the UK and our niche in the market is the sort of smaller companies by which we refer to the number of shareholders so anything up to sort of five seven thousand shareholders something like that thank you okay thank you Doug and uh, just one administrative point before we get into the discussion um, that at the end of this discussion um, we are going to move into a virtual networking uh, environment so uh, if you want to join some of the panelists afterwards etc please uh, stay on and you'll be broken out into individual rooms um, thank you very much everyone for, uh, for, uh, for for tuning in and listening to this um, we've seen this really strong IPO pipeline in the UK. City AM was carrying an article just in terms of how uh, robust the London market was. Uh, and we're seeing that um, reflected internationally. I mean, if you think of some of the motivations for companies coming to the market, um, access to capital to fund uh, growth and, and potentially to uh, secure better borrowing power, um, taking advantage of consolidation opportunities. And I think as a result of the pandemic, we're seeing you know, structural shifts in many sectors that, that are opening those up. Um, securing talent uh, and allowing for succession planning, monetizing goodwill um, that's been built up in the business, and are, in some cases just leveraging the brand. So businesses like Wise, um, which have come to market, really want to get the users of their business actually becoming owners of the business as well. Um, if I wanted to start the sort of Q and A, um, first first thing I, I should ask the panelists is: Are there any bad reasons for for listing current? 
typical red flags that would put institutional investors off. And Claire, given um, this is this is your bread and butter, maybe I could start with you and then uh, open it up to the other panelists for any any discussion around that. Of course. So I think you just listed five or six good reasons there for listing. There's probably a similar number of reasons and, and red flags to be aware of not to list. So um, one is growth. Um, that there's kind of um, relatively little point looking at listing if you've just changed your business model and you've had a year of down revenues. Um, you need to recover from that and show some positive momentum for um, a few half years, a few years before you think of listing. Um, having a, a, a capital structure that's watertight post IPO, so thinking about which key investors we've found, which founders need to be locked up so the market's not going to be flooded with stock. Valuation is obviously um, uh, an important one. Um, CEOs need to be aware of, of valuation in terms of their own acquisition strategy. So um, what would they pay for a business and therefore what do they think investors should pay for their own business? Um, sell downs. So has there been any private equity involved is, is quite a, a red flag in terms of value being stripped out. And partial sell downs can be, be done quite well if some investors, some early founders take some chips off the table. And we saw that with Dark Trace earlier this year, a, a great example of new money going in and some secondary sell down as well. Um, Aston Martin famously did their 100% sell down, which went pretty badly um, in 2018. So it's, it's about balance with all of these things, capital structure, valuation, um, sell downs. And then I mean, a bit of a bugbear of ours, I guess, at hybrid, hybrid and bandwagons. It's not just because a sector's hot that, that the company's great. Each business needs to be um, judged on its own merit. That's not to say that hot sectors, crypto cannabis can't spawn some great companies. Um, but there's, there's more to look at than just, is it a hot sector really? Um, and I think also for us, the blank check um, investment approach in small caps with this new craze of SPACs is one to be um, slightly aware of. I mean, we've, we've had them in London um, forever. It's not that they're new at all, they're, they're called shells. So um, just, just kind of be a little bit aware of, um, of, of looking at transactions of that nature. Thanks, Claire. And, um... I don't know if the, uh, the 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 lawyers and accountants on the panel uh, you see things um, I guess from a sort of technical perspective quite early on. If you want to add to that, uh, Paul, Michael, is there anything you would sort of uh, uh, bring up or uh, add to that? Um, I think probably some of the, some overlap with what Claire said, but I, I think people who look the list to solve a problem, they've potentially pursued three or four other strategies that haven't come off, and that they're stuck with one option. I think the best listings typically are a management team who, who want to access capital markets, want to grow the business, want to stay involved, believe you know, the best years of the company are ahead of it, not behind it. Um, and those who come to the market because nothing else has quite worked, you know, I, I think investors typically see through that. And ultimately, the diligence brings out the problems in those companies that have meant the previous deals haven't happened. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Paul? Yeah, just a quick point, Neil, on that, really. I think I think the problems that we've seen on the financial side really deal around, um, you know, the structure of the company and the group that's coming to market. Um, if you're an overseas lister thinking about coming to London, the question always is, where is Topco? Where, where does that need to be to be attractive to investors? And I think just the point to note would be, more esoteric locations as your Topco, um, that might be Caribbean, 
um, further afield in Seychelles and so forth. I think UK investors generally like something that is either onshore or pretty close there too. So just really a point to think about on tax structuring ahead of IPO. Okay. Thank you. Um, and if I could keep Michael and Paul uh, on, because I guess having having thought through the, the motives, et cetera, and, and for, for listing, it'd be useful just to get a, a thumbnail sketch of, um, you know, once you've taken the decision to list, what the typical process is to become a listed uh, company. And I, I'll, ultimately, I'm trying to get to what you think best practice is. So we could start with probably... Uh, Michael on the legal side, because I think you get involved quite early on in that sort of decision making sure. process around listing and then maybe Paul and then I'll turn to Claire and uh, Doug after that. Sure, I, I can see some of my colleagues and also some other lawyers on the call so they're they're bound to be banging their fist on the table saying I'm not not explaining it correctly so I, <laughs> a brief overview don't don't hold me to it if I've missed this out. Um, I, I think the first the first decision the company's got to make is which market and that's probably something we're going to come on to later and obviously each market has a slightly different process i think if, if, if we're looking at aim as a sort of brief overview now it would apply similarly to aquis standard list is a little bit different but the first thing is to appoint your advisors and people often hear timetables of 12 weeks or 16 weeks to get listed People don't normally factor in that it can take 8, 10, 12 weeks to get your advisors engaged. A lot, of engage, a lot of advisors won't just sign an engagement letter. They don't want to take your money if you have no prospect of getting listed. There is a, a beauty parade process. There is a, you know, a long period there where you're actually getting the team engaged who will take you to an IPO. Uh, once you've got those advisors engaged, um, at its core, you've got to prepare an admission document or a prospectus which is where you are at the moment of listing, telling the public uh, about your company, the good, the bad, uh, everything they need to know to make an informed decision. And that prospectus or admission document is, is like writing a book. When I started 15 years ago, they used to be 100 pages long. Now, now I don't think I've seen a 100-page prospectus for many years. They're, they're, they're big documents that take a lot of time to put together. And in putting it together, you obviously have to make sure that what you're including in the document is accurate. And so behind the prospectus preparation is extensive due diligence on your business, your material contracts, the people involved, the share capital structure, um, and, and any red flags will come out. We mentioned previously there as part of that process. Um, on the basis you can prepare a prospectus or an admission document, when you reach a point where you have that in substantially final form, typically you will, at that point, look to market the IPO. Um, and that's where brokers and other advisors will assist in uh, presenting the company to investors and the wider uh, sort of city uh, community. Um, and if you raise the money, you put your form into the relevant exchange and typically a, a short, short wait and then, then you're listed. Um, there's probably lots more to it than that, but I think the preparation of the admission document and prospectus is the key thing that you're doing for 10, 12, 16 weeks to the point where you can say, yes, this company is suitable for the public to invest in. This is eligible to list on, on the stock market and we can show this to investors and they can invest with confidence. Uh, thanks, Michael. And Paul, if I can bring you in, I mean, you know, uh, if you could sort of outline from a, an accounts perspective, preparation of working capital reports, things like that, as you go through that sort of process. 
Yeah, thanks, Neil. I've, I've just made some points actually just before I launch into uh, the exciting world of the accountants on a, on an IPO. Um, just a just a couple of points really for pre planning. Um, as as uh, as Michael said, it's it's a big decision to go to IPO. So some of the things that we we always come across and and at pretty early stage to be honest. Um, first of all, a lot of people ask, is an audit needed for an IPO? And and generally that's a very simple yes. Um, a lot of companies haven't been audited previously. Life as a pub, as a private client uh, company, uh, either in the UK or overseas. So an audit generally is required. Normally, that's a three-year track record history, um, which can be a big shock to to uh, to companies coming to market for the first time. So that's an easy question to answer. Um, the next one is 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 it is it IFRS or is it UK GAAP? What do companies need? Um, and generally, that's answered by the markets that you that you choose to go on. Anything on the premium list, standard list, and AIM would need IFRS accounts. If you're into Aquis, um, particularly the access market, you can use UK GAAP and indeed on the um, on the um, Apex as well. So there's choices there. I think the only caveat to that is really what do what do investors expect to see? And generally, that's IFRS. So I think the message really from us is if at all possible, IFRS is probably the way to go. So that's really point two. I think point three is, is timetable. Um, Michael's touched on that previously. Um, unfortunately, the auditors always seem to get the bad rap on, on timetables. It can be a, a bit of a lead time to get a three-year track record audited. Um, and so a, a good bit of planning up front is to get that process locked in with your chosen audit firm, make sure they have the bandwidth to deliver. Um, because that's really the start of the financial piece of work for an, for an IPO. So prior planning would um, would be very beneficial. Law lawyers side. always blame accountants for the delays, Paul. They always do. It's, it's always, <laughs> always. Uh, fingers, <laughs> fingers are always pointing. Um, yeah, you've got to have broad shoulders. Always, Paul. The bad, always the bad guys in the room. <laughs> uh, so, Paul, thank you. Thank just, you. Uh, is, is there anything else? There was actually, yeah, just, just, just two more, two more points really from practical points. Um, just very quickly, um, some, some companies in sectors like to present non-IFRS measures, and what that may mean is something like in technology, average revenue per user. Yeah. If it's oil and gas, it's cost per barrel. If it's mining, cost per ounce of gold. Um, so those things should be discussed up up front with your broker. Get those out out in the place early. And then finally, um, a process perspective from a team coming to IPO is a lot of work. Bandwidth may be an issue. So a lot of clients that we work with parachute people in just to help with the IPO process. Thanks, Neil. Thank you, Paul. Um, and Claire, if I could bring you into that, the, the conversation. I mean, we, we started with those sort of choices of advisors. Um, I mean, any 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 sort of views in terms of, you know, it's it's something which is important that you're you're signing up to someone that, that is going to be instrumental in making this work. So any advice on that? But also focusing on, you know, the test of waters, the marketing exercise, and then ultimately sort of coming to market. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And, and all super important um, points that, that Michael and, um, and Paul had there in terms of your accounts, your contracts, getting everything in, in good order, getting organized, basically. Um, but I would say for me um, and for any company thinking about listing, the most important point, and I would say this as a broker, is seek broking advice early. And you know, all too often we see companies who have invested a huge amount of time, money, effort 
in getting um, these 100 page plus documents in place and um, having lawyers and accountants go into every nook and cranny and get everything organized. But um, if the investment case hasn't been thought through, if it hasn't been tested, if historical baggage hasn't been sifted through in a way that broker would need to, to look at it, if you haven't done any test marketing and sat in front of a range of investors, then um, it, it's all sometimes for nothing. So the broker, in my opinion, is the most important person to speak to and early. Please don't package everything up and then think, oh, who can raise the money? Let's just go and hire someone quickly and, and tell them what we need them to do, because that's I brokers work they take a corporate finance view um to broking um but everything that that michael and and, and paula said they're about getting organized is super important i think another point is get a team have a dedicated project team to this it's hugely time consuming and all too often you see a company's general trading dip during the ipo process as um i yeah there's a huge cost to ipoing as in uh, as in a cost currency cost of, of money but there's a big time cost for management so um get that really good fd in place and have them manage the bis uh, the ipo business so that the ceo can keep managing the business and mindful of my point earlier on you need to continue to grow and to grow well after you've ipo'd to make sure that the business continues well and then another little bugbear of ours and i always ask my team when i do these things so that their input is, is throughout all of my comments. But one of my team members had the important point to take weekly calls seriously. So for companies, not just to show up and think, oh, that hour speaking to the accountants and lawyers and broker is done, um, tick, move on. Um, take each call seriously, go away with the, the to-do list, come back with it done the next week. Um, because when IPOs go into overtime, overrun that's when things can get very expensive and people can get grumpy I'm, I'm sure i speak with paul as well lawyers would agree that brokers are the most important you know we we don't make much money when we spend months and hundreds of hours on a project and we get to the end and the brokers say no one's going to invest in this company i'm sorry that's yeah. not business model for us either <laughs> I, th I think that's key michael as well because a lot of a lot of your work stream and our work stream is driven by the the market that you're on um so you know a, a big delay in timetable would be shifting markets halfway through so engage with brokers early thank you and doug if i could bring you in i mean we often hear from uh you know brokers lawyers and accountants on these topics but i think it's great to have someone on the registrar side because there are some simple things to make uh you know the shareholders who are sort of coming on board uh looked after and, and for a business to run effectively it'd be good to get your advice in terms of what is best practice you're still on mute i think doug after 18 months, you'd think I'd get the hang of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the face of it, a share registrar is ours is the easy role. We get given a list of shareholders, we import it into our systems, we can issue new share certificates, or we can transfer them, you know, move them across into Crest, dematerialization. But actually, in common with Claire and Paul and Michael, yeah, it's important for the company to do their own tidying up first, make sure that they're the shareholder names are actually in names that we can register or should be registered. You know, we, you, you shouldn't have shares registered in, in the pension scheme name or in a family trust or things like that. So get the register tidied up, make sure the addresses are current. There's nothing more frustrating for us to issue shares to it's all the new shareholders, big fanfare on admission, only for half of them to come back as address not known, moved away three years ago. Um, and just make sure everything's, you know, 
many years ago, we, we imported a register and one of the entries was Bob the Accountant. No one knew who Bob the Accountant was. He had shares, but... I'm Bob the Accountant. Can you send me shares? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. This is the name I use. <laughs> um, and the other part is Crest. Yeah, Crest works very well, but it's, yeah, the investors must make sure they've got, they know who their custodian is. They've got the right Crest details. Don't ask to have your shares put in Crest and then expect us to find out the details. You know, it's, it's equivalent to saying, I'd like you to transfer me some money. Can you find out my bank details for me? No, we can't. That's the investor's role, um, particularly with overseas shareholders. You know, Crest is a UK system. The Europeans, oh yeah, the rest of the world don't use Crest. They use you know, Clearstream or whatever. And there can be quite a lengthy train of intermediaries that you all have to be lined up in order to instruct the UK custodian. And it's only once the UK custodian confirms that they knew, know who the underlying investor is that they will actually accept the shares. You know, we can put the shares in their account and they'll simply just bounce straight back. So it's particularly important for Crest to, to get that set up as soon as possible and confirmed, particularly when there's a long chain of intermediaries. Other than that, yes, you know, nice and simple. Just give us a list of shareholders and we'll, we'll sort it out. No, okay, thank you. That's useful to know, and um, uh, you know, insights that I don't often hear. So that's that's good. <laughs> I mean, what what what? Um, I mean, we've seen this very strong IPO pipeline over the last um, twelve uh, since the pandemic sort of hit. You know, you've seen actually a very buoyant uh, market. Um, I was wondering if I could open it up to everyone, just uh, in terms of you know some reasons as to why you believe that this is happening. What are the, what's driving this strong IPO pipeline in the UK and then abroad as well? I'll have a crack at that one, Neil. Go on. <laughs> I mean, people ask me that all the time, and it kind of goes back a few years. With uh, you know, you talk about the B word, the Brexit word, um, that really shut the markets down for a good while. Um, people weren't sure what to do with investments and so forth. Purse strings were closed. Um, and then we emerged from, from uh, Brexit early last year. And of course, COVID's then hit as well. Again, what's the world doing? What are the risks for investors? Sit tight or you know, put money into companies that they're already invested in. And so I think there's a wall of cash sitting there really for nigh on two years, really not doing anything. And, and the wall has suddenly come down and, and people are looking to deploy if they don't deploy it, they've got to give their cash back to the investors, such as you and I, in pension funds mm -hmm. and so forth. So I think there's a there's a there's a need for deployment of cash. What are people looking for? Um, originally, right at the start of COVID, there was a lot of cash going into existing investee companies, prop them up and give them a good balance sheet to go and acquire. Um, but now there's new companies coming on. Dare I say, post COVID, brave man to say post COVID, but. Um, a lot of new companies that we've seen in the last six months coming to market for the first time, which is great to see. Claire, anything you sort of... Yeah, I, 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 think, I think everything that, that Paul has said, though, you know, times of low interest rates generally drive um, investors to the equity markets. We've seen a, a huge inflow of, of retail with more people working from home and opening online dealing accounts. So I think half one this year, we saw a couple of billion exit the UK institutional money but we've seen 24 billion of retail come into the market in half one so there's a lot of money looking to play in the equity markets which is great and then i think another point is that you know, over the past decade slowly private equity has been winning against um, the public markets in terms of valuation but um it, it's um it's it is a bit of a bandwagon effect the companies start to do well the 
press starts to cover IPOs and fundraisings going on in London and, and generally the busyness of it all. And, and it becomes attractive. And some of the valuations on market have been more attractive over the past 18 months than private equity have been offering. So there is a bit of tension always there between private equity and the capital markets and capital markets has done well over the last 18 months. Okay, so we've got, I mean, as a summary of that, we've got the need to deploy capital, the fact that retail's adding to that, that markets are providing valuations, which is making it attractive for owners to think about listing their businesses. Um, anything else that, uh, Michael, that you think is in that list? I would echo what Claire said. I, I think the power of the retail pound has increased over the last two years. People have been at home. Some of the brokerages have released a sort of news that shows that they've opened hundreds of thousands of accounts during the pandemic. Improved technology has made it easier and more accessible for more people. And it, it, it's a, an uncomfortable truth that people who have been employed and been able to keep working during the pandemic have more disposable income. And so the, the financial power of the what are, what are regarded as retail brokers has increased and previously deals that would need institutional support to get listed, perhaps in 2017 or 18, are, are getting away with predominantly retail money, with strong demand and, and, and oversubscribed placings. So I think that that's from our perspective, uh, companies in particular, that, that is a key driver. Um, there is real, real money available in retail yeah. at the moment. Yeah, and I think, look, I mean, we, we, we hear about, you know, it's creating the environment and the opportunity to list. I think a lot of uh, private companies also through the pandemic, A, saw opportunities to, um, you know, either consolidate, et cetera, but they also saw the need to diversify their capital base uh, away from a reliance on, you know, a small group of private equity holders or, or banks. So certainly we're aware of a number of people who brought forward their listing plans uh, to just to, to think about sort of diversifying that capital base. So I think the environment also has sort of created that. Um, I, I, I sort of wanted to sort of touch on, uh, we touched on the sort of different classes of investors there. Um, when, you, when you think about a company listing, um, is there an optimal mix in terms of the right kind of balance between institutional investors and how much consideration, you know, what kind of institutional investors should you get on board? Um, and then how much um, attention should you give to the, some of those other sources of capital, retail, private wealth? Claire, probably your best place to uh, start on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, not to ignore any of the different sources of, of capital and to get out there early, <clears throat> get thoughts on your valuation, meet a range of investors, <clears throat> so IPOs are, you know, they're a big commitment fee-wise fee and time-wise for management teams, and you want to flush out all the potential concerns from investors. And to do that, you need to, you need to see a diverse range of them. So the institutions, but also um, be aware of as a management team and, and founders, um, flush out early in the process, are you going to further invest in the process? It's not always about sell-down. Some um, managers want to put into the process further. Um, think about pre-IPO funding, think about getting EIS in place early. Um, too often we see companies saying that EIS are bull and they've not written to HMRC. So um, for us, it's not EIS are bull until we've seen an email from HMRC to say that you are EIS are bull. And that could then lead to VCT investing. But also if you're a biotech or a tech company, 
think about the various non-dilutive funding options out there, grant funding, um, and, and other, other types of funding, strategic partners, strategic funding that gives validation to your business model as well as attractive to investors. So it, it's kind of, it, ignore any of it at your peril, really. It, it all needs to be thought through and, and packaged up on day one of marketing and not evolve as it goes. So um, companies that management decide to participate on day nine out of a 10-day roadshow, you, you've lost nine days of, of explaining that to the investors that you're sat in front of, which is very attractive. So get everything in place early. And to do that, you need to speak to a broker early and get out there and meet a whole range of investors. Thanks, Claire. Um, I, I'm conscious of time, and so I'm going to try to move through a few more questions to, to get a breadth uh, here. I mean, you you go through that journey, um, you finally get through, It's you know, you list, uh, there's probably, you know, need some time off from the exhaustion of getting through that, that sort of process. But, but now it's the, you know, it's the start of the journey. Um, and I just wanted to get the panel to share views in terms of you know, how important, once you're listed, how much attention do you need to give to the listing in particular, how important is stock liquidity? Um, and how much time mentally should a management team sort of map out in their head in terms of keeping existing and new, new investors informed on the business? Um, again, Claire, you're at the, at the coal face on this and I'll bring some of the others in after. Okay, so a few quick thoughts there. Liquidity is every investor's best friend. So. Um, the more liquid you are as a company, the more your share price can react to, to good news. Um, there is obviously a flip side to that as well. But I think you're asking how much time should management devote? It's a bit like get organized, get the team in place for the IPO. It's the same for when you're listed. Who is going to take the broker calls? Who is going to take the calls from the analyst and shareholders and so on? And you need to apportion that out. You need to work out your processes and procedures for dealing with with the city. And then there's a finite balance between CEOs that watch the share price every day, that's not good, and those that have a 10-year vision and say, we'll see you in 10 years. Um, the, there's, there's a balance in the middle, really, um, of the company focusing on its operational issues, delivering on what it said it would deliver on um, at the IPO with all the um, promises it made as to what it was going to do with the funds and as a business, and communicating that to the market. Um, and it's a balance, really. And when you're communicating it to the market, you're doing that via um, via your broker and meetings that the broker sets up one on one. But you should also take note of all the other platforms that are out there to to reach to reach companies, whether that's Master Investor or Investor Meet Company, Proactive, Box Markets. There's a whole range of them. And companies traditionally these days don't just pick their PR to represent them. They'll have a PR and then they'll. Um, then they'll have a subscription with Proactive to get in front of retail. And, and, and there's, there's any number of these um, out there as well. Mellow as well is, is, is a great way of getting companies in, in front of um, investors. So it, it's a, again, it's a balance. It's about doing everything. And it's a lot of work um, for a listed company, for the management team. It's such a lot of work being listed, really, and engaging effectively with the markets. 
Uh, I'll, I'll bring in Michael and Paul. I mean, you know, you work with companies as they go through the listing process. I'm assuming that you maintain those relationships and, you know, it's, it's my sort of fly on the wall. We uh, never want to see each other again. I just, you know, because I think, I think, you know, your perspective would be interesting in that it's the sort of, it's the post-match analysis of like a, you've listed this company. I mean, how, when you, when you meet, re, you know, meet up with management teams subsequent to the IPO, how do they, how much do they complain about the amount of time that they have to spend with investors, or do they? Have I think they're surprised. Uh, I, I I think the smaller cap companies that do well, if you speak to their CEOs, I actually spoke to one prior to this call. He, he would estimate that he spends seventy five percent of his working week uh, facing the investment community, existing investors, wow. investors, trying to make sure the messaging for the company is right, and and, and he never thought for a second pre IPO. That would be the case um, and obviously that has a knock-on effect on the operations of the business i think it, it, it's hard as a small cap company you know build it and they will come but they don't and so it is a constant process of getting your message out attracting you know there's competition for every pound uh, that's being traded and liquidity is absolutely critical as you've said um, and i think he actually said you know he wears a pair of shoes out every week you know just pounding the pavement and, and that's a big commitment. And I think it's underestimated by a lot of companies uh, who are who sort of list and they think they sort of end of the journey, but really it's the beginning. Um, so uh, that's probably as much as I would say, but it's very important. No, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's useful. Um, if, okay, you've all got clients who, um, who've, who've listed. How, could you pick out maybe one, one or two names that you think actually have done, just as a case study, people who've used their listing very effectively? Crikey, I've got, I've got 50 clients, and so I've got to be careful. With, well, Hill Dickinson's got 50. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm reluctant to name one or two. And, you know, for name and shame. Um, <laughs> If somebody else wants to answer that, I'll, yes, I'll, yeah, I can, can I can happen to go. I'm, I, I'm going to pick someone that isn't a client, actually, so that I don't... Yes, good discussion of thought on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so um, TPX Impact used to be known as Panapplied, um, digital transformation consultancy business, um, we think has really used it. It's quite well. They've done a fantastic job of using their listing to grow their business. And coming back to an earlier point they made, uh, that I made, not wanting the valuation that you want and ignoring what valuation you're prepared to pay for other companies. So um, they've been buying lots of businesses, buy and build strategy using a blend of cash and shares, which is a good idea when you're listed. And they've also had quite a clever earnout that ratchets up and down depending on the um, whether the acquisition company's performance is in line above or, or below. So they've grown very well organically. They're very principled. They've got strong ESG principles. I'm sure we're going to come on to that. Mm -hmm. gifting, gifting shares to charities and so on. So Panapply or, or as now is TPX Impact, I think has been a great buy and build. I Thank from, you, Claire. I think from my side, Neil, just uh, just on the oil and gas side, diversified energy was a was a very good use of markets. Um, we saw them about four years ago with just a three-man team. Um, so U.S. business um, had a very good model about financing and using end-of-life gas assets in the U.S. Uh -huh. Listed on AIM, um, undertook about five uh, acquisitions, three of which were reverse takeovers. So lots of work for the advisors, but the business grew rapidly, 800 million, 850 million, and then moved up to the, um, the premium list to access U.S. cash. 
So using London's markets, albeit the junior end, was a very good success story for them to get where they wanted to be. Thank you, Paul. Um, and Claire, you mentioned ESG, and I think I, I seem to recall that the City AM article that I referred to yesterday had 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 the, the, the ending line of no e, no ESG strategy, no IPO. I mean, how you know it's something which we've seen a huge surge in importance, COP26 on the horizon, more and more sort of focus on it. Um, could you? How important is it when you're talking, particularly for the, the smaller cap end, how important is ESG as a consideration to make sure investors come on board as a, uh, when, when you're IPOing? Yeah, I mean, that train's left. It's, it's not going away. It's only going to increase. At the, you know, it's, it's for FTSE 100 companies and, and the larger of the small, you know, the larger of the non-FTSE 100s that have to look at this. But, but it's, it's not actually the case. So we, we've got, um, we've got microcap, small cap clients where um, investors send them very detailed questionnaires um, for the boards to answer that they would call an ESG um, questionnaire that goes to all portfolio companies. And they're looking very um, in very great detail at the board composition, number of years of service, and asking very um, pointed questions. So um, I think all companies need to sit up and take it seriously, put it on the board agenda. Um, and it's not about doing everything to comply on, on day one. It's, it's about showing that you've gone through a thought process um, with, with E, with S, and with G and that you break it out separately and show, I mean, you may not be, without thinking about it, you may not be aware of the things that you're already doing as a board in that area. And it's about showcasing- Very good point. You know, perhaps highlighting a couple of things that you're going to strive to do over the next 12 months. Thank you, Claire. I think your point there, that small companies don't realize often the impact they are having locally. It doesn't mean your business plan and becoming a charity. You know the impact of what some of these small companies doing is significant. They just need to correctly relay that to the investment community. I think um, just just one thing to add as well with 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 small caps. It's there, there, I think there is a decision to be made. Is it is it something you need to do to comply and tick the box from an investor perspective, or is it something that's a little bit more ingrained in the business anyway? Um, so we've just worked with a, with a company called Made, Made Tech Group listed on AIM. And they said, look, we, we don't want a board committee for ESG. We're going to take it off the board and just have it really as, an, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a target for the company. We've got employees and staff that really believe in it. And so rather than just limit it to the board itself, it's, it comes out of the corporate governance sort of sphere and goes into a general DNA of the business. And I think you know, if, if you say that to an investor, that's great news. Thanks. I mean, it's it's uh, the the other thing I would probably add to that is that I think um, the market's matured, and it used to be that uh, you know there would you know there's certain businesses that just would get excluded um, because of the nature of their business from from investment portfolios. Actually, when we're talking to um, sustainable investors, you, know, you saw you you know I think conscious of the fact that there was a flood of money going into you know trendy you know sustainable sectors and actually leading to some some really extreme valuations a lot of them are interested in businesses you know which are what they classify as maybe sort of um, just starting their journey and working with them to help uh, improve their, their their performance on on ESG so I think it's it's one of those of being open about exactly what you say. You know, be positive about the the, the impact that you're having, 
but also be aware of the things that you could could address and 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 put in place a program to 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 improve on those things and i think you can then start to win over the the uh the, the sort of sustainable investors if you can do that um we've seen quite a lot of focus on um changes to make the uk listing environment um more attractive um you've seen the lord hill review and our current fca consultation uh paper looking at how they make primary markets more effective um and and i know all of you are sort of fully aware of the the range of proposals within that so i'm not going to go through them point by point but i was wondering if there's any elements within the current proposals be it dual cost shares or minimum market cap sizes um that um, you would flag to potential IPO candidates just to take notes off um, as they're thinking about listing? I would say the one that's getting the most headlines is the proposed increase in the market cap to 50 million, mm -hmm. 700,000. So that's quite a big jump in the hurdle, if you like, the, the minimum threshold cap companies trying to get to the standard segment. Um, that That's not... A, uh, it is just a consultation and there's, there's lots of rumours around the city actually the threshold will be lower because this consultation process I dare say nine out of ten responses would have lasered in on that certainly from the small cap community would have laid, lasered in on that uh, uh, increase and said that, that that shuts out a lot of good fast growth companies from the standard segment the, the counter argument to that is of course the aim is or should be the natural home for those companies and has been for many years. Uh, and yeah. London Stock Exchange want, wants its fast growth companies. But I think standard segment has become popular as a cheaper alternative for small cap companies. Um, and that increase would certainly mean that uh, a number of those companies will be shut out from the standard segment and, and would have a reduced choice in terms of where they list in London. Any others and other points in there that anyone wants to um, raise? Otherwise, I can move on. I think it's um, I think it's a difficult one. Um, London needs to remain very competitive to attract um, to attract the high profile IPOs as as well as the smaller companies that, that we will work on in that market. So it's it's a balance, and the FCA is trying to get the right balance here. Um, I can imagine it probably spends an undue amount of time on some of the smaller company. Um, listings, um, although one thing we love about working in London is the choice. So, and I think we'll come on to a question on Aquis later, but there's the main market, which is divided into premium and standard, and then there's Aquis, which is divided into two, and we have AIM. So, um, we don't really want to see the market um, standardizing, if you like, and all having um, the same rule and the same market cap threshold, because then we are going to we are going to create gaps of companies that can't get listed. Um, and equally, I don't think market cap is, is the right threshold. Um, the FCA wants something there. And on the standard list, for example, I think it's 700K um, right now, the threshold. So to go from 700K to 50 million is probably too big a jump. But we will, as a community, need to feed into those consultations to, um, to help the FCA make the right decisions here. And they do want something in place. So. Um, it, it's about working within the system, really. 
Thank you, Claire. A uh, final final question before I, I move into a, a broader Q and A. Um, and just a reminder to everyone listening in: if you if you do have a question, please submit it through the chat function. Um, you clearly seen a growth in passive investing. Uh, it's a trend that uh, you know we've seen over the last decade. It's getting to you know pretty significant sizes in some markets, the US in particular, where I think passive AUM is 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 just tipping over fifty percent of what is actually in the market. Um, I'd, I'd like to to bring in. What, I mean, Doug, I'd be fascinated from a registrar perspective if. Um, you know, if if you're seeing any sort of changes to, to the register because of passive investing, is it just that you're seeing far more of Vanguard turning up on the on the register? And then uh, from an impact perspective, um, how do companies who are IPOing think at, think about passive investing, particularly in the light of you know their smaller cap and that they, they you know smaller cap companies don't necessarily feature in a lot of the indices. Yes, and from our point of view, um, it has not a huge impact and, and we wouldn't necessarily know who the investors are because they're all investing through nominees so we wouldn't know and we you know, we can't identify who the underlying investors are um there certainly is a lot of movement between the accounts um but whether that's passive or institutional or, or retail investors uh, you know an awful lot of retail investors don't have name on register they're with you know interactive investors or etc so it, it's difficult for us to know where you know, who exactly is investing, but suddenly there's a, okay. the volumes are increasing. Okay, thanks. And uh, Claire, is, is any views in terms of how that's impacting uh, the market? Well, it kind of guarantees buyers for the larger companies, really. But most of us on, on this um, on this panel certainly are dealing with with smaller companies, which which in theory provide um, you know higher growth and, and value opportunities with 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 higher alpha. Um, not not necessarily in the indices, but um, you know, with less availability of investment research, I think it's it's important to get acquainted with the small cap specialists, the advisors, the investors, so that you can really know your market. I'm, I'm sure there'll be a question somewhere later about you know, is there any point in sub 100 million market caps? Are there investors for them? Well, yes, the most definitely are, but it's about you know, it's about the time that management dedicates really to the city and getting out there and finding the people in your ecosystem that fund you to the next stage really before you get into the um, get to the point of being um, able to take advantage of index trackers and so on. Okay, um, I'll move on to um, sort of questions. So just a reminder to everyone that if they do have a question, please do submit it uh, on the chat function. I'll try and pick, pick them up. Uh, we do have uh, a, a number of questions already in. Um, and I guess, Claire, Claire, you already sort of touched on it. So um, on terms of minimum market cap, is there is there what is the minimum suggested market cap for a company to consider an IPO? It was on the QCA questionnaire. Um, I'm sure we'll all have different views, but it'd be interesting to get the, uh, you know, some, some views around the panel as to what is ideal. Um, I think there isn't a, there isn't an ideal. I think if you're looking at AIM, some of the nomads will talk about um, a 20 million plus um, market cap threshold. Um, the the main market, so standard and premium, we've got this 50 million market cap in there. There's going to be something because consultations, um, quite a lot of what's in them usually um, usually comes to bear. But there's certainly if you're EIS and VCTable and a smaller market cap, there is. 
um, there is a, a wall of cash out there um, looking for great opportunities. And it's not because you're a smaller market cap that you're necessarily um, any less attractive. Thanks. Um, I mean, I did, I do, I, I had a, um, a conversation with a one institutional investor who said that, you know, depending on, I mean, liquidity is important. It allows you to sort of get in and out of a, a stock. It's probably the biggest sort of uh, way of mitigating risk. To, to, to get to mitigate that with the smaller cap you are, that the better the upside has got to be. So he'll take a look at something which is small cap if there's you know really great potential in the business. And of course, the, the larger cap you, you become, um, you're expecting yes. less growth. And, and I think the, it's, it's, it's exactly that point, Neil. It's about um, not looking at what should the market cap be and working backwards from there. Um, think about free float, think about who your investors are and think about valuation. And you'll be the yep. market cap that you are based on that. Okay, we've had a we've had, we've had a question in on um, liquidity, uh, which is under fifty million pound market cap. There appears a limited amount of institutional investors, and liquidity remains an issue even for sort of uh, the four to five hundred million. What what is what's your view on market liquidity, Claire? Is has the market become less liquid over the last say four or five years or more liquid? Um and is liquidity an issue for small cap companies? I think I think on that one Neil as well it depends on the market, doesn't it? So yeah. it might be might be nice to hear a little bit about different markets, Aquis aim and, and standard. Yeah. I mean, certainly the volumes have been picking up over the last um, over the last eighteen months, um, and and liquidity liquidity has definitely been improving as retail have come into the market. Um, there's there's been a there's been a big uplift there. Um, it, it's hugely important, and it's about right going back right to the start in terms of um, your valuation coming on market at the right cap with with the right spread of investors. And you know the lockups as well of key founders and management not having a wall of cash coming out onto the market, shares flooding the market, and no home. So you've got to balance that um, constantly getting out there and meeting investors. So when you have a seller at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, there is someone there ready to buy. Um, you've got your register on day one, but it's going to continue and should continue to evolve. And that comes back to the amount of time managements are going to spend meeting the city, meeting investors, and you should be push, pushing your broker to get out there and introduce you to investors on an ongoing basis, not just with the yearly. Oh, and buy lots of pairs of shoes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> buy lots of pairs of shoes. <laughs> I, think, I think also, Claire, it's about why the company's on the market in the first place, isn't it? If you if you yeah. see an IPO as a means to an end and don't really do much when you're on the market, then it's going to be difficult for people to you know, get into the share and, and drive liquidity. If you, you know, if you go in there, you start doing good things, you you say you're going to do a business plan, you deliver on that business plan, you've got good news coming into the market on a regular basis. It goes without saying that people are going to be interested in the share and you will drive more liquidity. You'll have things to talk about with investors. Yes, exactly. With the smaller companies, there are some tax um, benefits there on, on AIM and access of EIS and, and VCT and AIM companies are qualifying for inheritance tax relief and ISAs and so on. There are pools of investors there. Thank you. Um, there's a question that's come in uh, uh, in terms of we've, we've talked about how much uh, the board's talking, spending time talking to investors. Um, curious about the question is about the G and ESG. 
Uh, so governance, does the financial reporting timetable and governance requirements dictate the entire pattern of the, the board meetings that are going to take place? So I, don't, I don't think, I'm just Play my own views. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that, that you know board meetings are just going to take place um, to meet governor's requirements but I mean you know there, there's a reason you have board meetings um, I, I guess we'll take the question in a sort of slightly broader context of, of board meetings governance is around the composition of your board and how effective that board is um, and you know how many times they meet um, ex ex What's what's the panel's view on on you know looking at uh, the G and and the you know what what rules of thumb that um, you know our potential companies are that are thinking of IPO should should uh, consider in terms of board composition board meetings. I think um I think on general board meetings there is a rule of thumb that you meet once a quarter. Um, virtually every company would say that that's what they intend to do or actually do already. But in, in reality, what, what a lot of nomads and corporate advisors would probably want to see is something in the, a little bit more often than that in the first, um, certainly the first year of admission as well. So to maybe six to eight times, it, it, it's a bit of a time commitment on boards. Um, but life as a, as, an, as, as a public company is very different from life as a, as a private company. And so that initial bedding in period, I think the boards should really meet as I say, at least six to eight times. Um, the subcommittees, um, that's a different thing. There's a, the, the audit committee generally meets two to three times a year. Um, if you then have an ESG committee, that could be a lot more often, depending on how aggressive you're going to be with assessing and reporting back on your ESG commitments and, and messages that you want to give to investors. Um, nomination and remuneration really is is a little bit more ad hoc depending on movements within the board and coming up for re-elections and so forth so i think i think the general message is i think for a year is the minimum at least in the first year and i would go for six or eight okay i'll just very quickly add i'm conscious i've seen how many questions are coming through and so certainly personally i'm happy to answer the ones that aren't essays perhaps after the after the session and potentially in the network in the networking session afterwards but some of them are happy to sort of respond to either via master investor or the small cap um, team um, I would just say with regards to governance I don't think small companies should be put off by you know if they perceive the governance obligations to be too much they're not frankly um, and there is enough flexibility in UK corporate governance requirements for all of the markets that allows small companies to be right-sized um, in terms of their governance commitments. You're not BP or Tesco, you know, there is flexibility there. You are expected to, as a board to meet, you are expected to have independent directors, you are expected to pay attention to the business and, and make sure everything is done properly, but it, it certainly shouldn't be a reason that a small company should, should not or worry about a listing in the future. And I think I think just on just on code, Michael. Um, generally, there's two two codes that that companies look for. It's the UK Corporate Governance Code or the the Junior Small Cap Code, the, the QCA Quoted Companies Alliance Code. Um, I think in the in the junior market, 95% of people would automatically choose the QCA Code. Um, it's a lot more flexible. It's aimed at small cap companies um, and gives companies flexibility to incorporate corporate governance, but in their own 
um, best practice way within their own firm. So, so QCA generally is the is the way forward. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to try and squeeze in. I've got four minutes before we uh, we have to wrap this up and hopefully move into uh, sort of networking. Um, to one quick question. So, just rule of thumb. Um, do you want to give a sort of currency cost for what? What should uh, people who are thinking of IPOing just have as a mental picture of the cost of IPOing? Um, that you're you're I, all you're all in the uh, fee charging business. Commission on fundraisers is typically five to six percent, and I, I think you know you're you're seeking to do a kind of total cost of. Of, of capital really of, of maybe eight, nine percent. Um, some markets are more expensive than others. And coming back to a point I made earlier, um, if, if you're not open um, about everything with your advisors, director debt, shareholder debt, all of these kinds of things, and things creep out the woodwork through the process, then when you, when you get into overrun, um, things can start to become more expensive then people can start to renegotiate fees and and sometimes you need extra work doing you need lawyers in a different jurisdiction it's really good to get everything on the table and fully open the kimono at the start thank you um and that final question which i mean there was a, a fairly bleak article in the uh, economist about the london stock exchange i mean i have to say that the some of the stats were quite harsh. Um, you know, the, the starting point of comparing today's numbers versus 2005. Actually, if you remember back to 2005, there's a there's a splurge of IPOs because Sarbanes-Oxley in London became a sort of venue of, of choice for a lot of companies. Uh, but I, I want to give the panel a chance to, to represent home turf. Why should why should you think about listing in London? What makes this a great market? I think it's the choice of market that we have. There's a, the, as advisors, it's not one size fits all. The two of us here on this call can sit down, meet a company, and, and it has options as to which market to go to. And, and there's a range of, of investors, proper investors at the small cap end of the market. Um, London still has the most successful small cap markets globally, and it's still the most dominant player in Europe, whether that's on IPOs, secondary fundraisers, number of unicorns that are private it's still the most dominant player within europe i think that point is absolutely correct and, and the article you referred to in the economist which you sent round helpfully i don't want to present myself as someone who pours through the economist on a regular basis but um uh, people judge london stock exchange based on the mega ipos the 10 billion 20 billion 30 billion and the, the economist drew the conclusion london was missing out on those and so london isn't working um, or working as well as it was, as Claire says, London remains completely preeminent as a small cap venue, um, partly because of the range. You know, I don't think there's a, an Australian or Canadian small cap company that doesn't want to be in London. And the, the same isn't true the other way, bluntly. Um, you know, it, it is still the best place for a small cap company internationally. Um, the most money, the most liquidity, the best advisor pool, the most experience. And so you know, the headlines are misleading as a small cap venue, I think it's still completely preeminent. And with that, can I thank, can I take a moment? To, look, you've, you've all been brilliant. It's great to have such an engaged panel. I really appreciate um, that, you know, you've opened up and sort of shared the insights. So let me take a, a moment to say, say, thank all of you for the uh, participation and contributions. Thank you everyone for uh, listening. 
Um, if if I can now let the magic work, if you do want to network, I'm not in control of this. Uh, <laughs> you'll be put into uh, to, to meeting rooms. Um, there is a small, just a final administrative point that the uh, small cap uh, awards, I think, um, uh, have 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 just been uh, announced. Uh, there's a short list available, and tickets for the awards are available. Um, Tim's very kindly sort of shared the slides on that. Um, if you like the small cap community, please do participate uh, and get in touch to uh, to get hold of a ticket. Um, and with that, can I say thank you to everyone? Um, and uh, I will I will now uh, wait for us to be put into individual <laughs> meeting rooms.